Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Reverend Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, which you will find in the New Testament section of our Pew Bibles, beginning on page 17 or on screen. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Holy Father, tell us what we need to hear and show us what we ought to do to obey Jesus Christ. Amen. Matthew 17, verse 1. Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter, and, then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, tell no one about this vision until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Scarlett. Thank you for reading the scriptures for us this morning. I want us to, um, to get ready for Lent. This Wednesday marks the start of Lent, and our church is providing a study guide that you can use to aid you in your journey through Lent. In fact, we are hoping that many of you will consider using, using this resource in your small groups, or if you are interested in joining a group, or if you would like to start a group, that these resources are available to help us in our journey as we fast, as we pray, as we take the time to consider where we are in our journey with Christ, to repent of sin, and to turn ourselves over to him. If you'd like to know more about the small groups, you'd like to start a small group, you're wondering which groups I could join, I'm wondering if the people who are helping to lead our small group ministries, people like Katie Ingle or or Kim, or Dan, I don't know if Karen Shaw is here today, yep, she's here. If you guys would just wave your hands so people can see where you are, Dan's up in the balcony, and uh, wave them again so people can see you. Thank you, guys. We really want you to feel the, the freedom to pursue these opportunities to grow in your faith. After this worship service, we will gather in this space for our annual meeting, and uh, I know that we sent out a letter to our congregation. Many of you would have received it. And I want to then say a little bit more in our congregational meeting about that as we start the meeting, and then we'll go on with the business of the meeting. But I do want you to, to join us for that 
um, and to be fully aware of what's going on as, um, as I tendered my resignation this, uh, earlier this week. But today we're here for a bigger purpose, and that is to reflect on Jesus, the transfiguration of Jesus. What is it? What did it mean to the disciples? And why should it matter for people like us living in 2023? Why is it important? You know, the first thought I had when I read the text again in preparation for this morning, I was thanking God that the transfiguration is still one of those important events in the life of Jesus that has yet, yet and I say yet, to be monetized. I don't think you can go anywhere in this country or in the world where a company is going to be selling a, a transfiguration gown or a, a transfiguration halo or a bobblehead Moses. Maybe there is a bobblehead Moses, I don't know. Or a bobblehead Jesus or anything like that. Now, Christmas has clearly been monetized. And sometimes we have to fight hard to really keep the focus. Easter, obviously, as we go into Easter, especially for our children, we want to make sure that they get the message it's not about what's in those little plastic Easter eggs. To help them understand more fully what Easter is all about. But the transfiguration of Jesus is still not monetize, and I praise God for that. Because this event, yes, it's difficult to understand, but it carries such deep meaning. It carries such weight for us who are seeking to follow Jesus. So maybe one of the first questions we could ask ourselves is then, what is it? What is the transfiguration? What does it mean? What is it all about? And you heard the text read by Scarlett. Now, what we didn't read was what happened in chapter 16, in chapter 16, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And of course, they were all over the map trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? And Jesus then asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, you came to that answer not because you're smart, not because flesh and blood revealed it to you, but because it was revealed to you by God. And then he said these words, and this is important as we read and listen and consider what was just read in chapter 17. Jesus said to them that those of you who are standing here will not see death until the Son of Man is revealed in his glory. Now, in some translations, Matthew 17, 1 begins with six days later. Six days later, after that conversation, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and leads them up to the mountain. This is something Jesus does all the time. And I've always been moved by that when I read about the habits of Jesus. Going up to the mountain, going into the wilderness, going alone, taking the disciples with him. That's one of his habits. He goes up to the mountain. And I, I would imagine the disciples were thinking, great, we need a break. Because when you look at chapters 15 and 16, it's just nonstop ministry, nonstop confrontation, nonstop teaching. So the disciples were saying, we need a break. And when they got up to the mountain, of course, as you heard in the reading, Jesus was transfigured. So what's the meaning? Some people say that the transfiguration was for the disciples. Up to this point, they saw Jesus. They saw Jesus, yes, he's doing some remarkable things. Did they make the connection between Jesus 
son of Mary, son of Joseph, possibly the Messiah, and were they also seeing him as the son of God, the savior of the world, the promised one that was spoken of by all the prophets? I don't think so. I would say to you this morning that the transfiguration is for the disciples because now they're seeing Jesus not just as a human being, they're seeing him in all of his glory and what he will look like when the kingdom comes. But the second possibility is that it also speaks to the unity of the Testaments. Think with me about that for a moment. The unity of the Testaments. There's a relationship between what has gone on before in what we could call the, 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 the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and what is now being projected in this new covenant that Jesus is bringing. For us today, many of us, and I've heard many of you say that, not just here at First Spreads, but in so many other places, people say, I don't like to read the Old Testament. It presents God as angry, as vengeful, that God is a warrior God. And people avoid the Old Testament. It's kind of archaic. We don't sh we're unsure what to do with some of its principles. And then those same folks will say, I prefer the New Testament. Because the New Testament shows the love and the kindness of Jesus. There is no love in the Old Testament. There is no kindness in the Old Testament. And it's the love of Jesus that I find in the New Testament. God is angry in the Old Testament. I don't want to read that. Jesus is kind in the New Testament. So I'm going to opt for the New Testament. And I would offer to you today that we will come up short in our faith if we take that approach. If you want to follow Jesus, follow him through the Testaments. Jesus wants us to see that the law and the prophets were not just a collection of ancient texts, but they pointed to him. Do you remember on the, the road to Emmaus, the disciples are blinded by their grief. They think it's all over because in their minds, Jesus might have been the one. He's dead. He's buried. It's all over. And Jesus then showed them through the law and the prophets that he was the promised ones, and then their eyes were opened. Jesus is fulfilling. If you want to write these down and you go back and read it later, Deuteronomy 18, 18. Jesus is fulfilling the words of Ezekiel 37. Jesus is fulfilling the words of Jeremiah 31. Jesus is fulfilling the words of Isaiah 53 and 61 and 66. The law and the prophets are speaking, anticipating the fulfillment of those promises and messages that they would be fulfilled in Jesus. And then the wonderful passage that says that the earth will be filled. Can you imagine that? The earth one day, and I know when you think about the earth and what's happened in, in Turkey and in Syria and the war in, in, in Ukraine and just all the chaos that's in the world, you yearn, the, the, the world is groaning, waiting for its redemption. And the Bible tells us a day will come when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. And Jesus on that mountain was giving the disciples a glimpse, a glimpse that the promises that God made are now being fulfilled and will be fulfilled in him. And that's why God tells us and told the apostles, the disciples, Listen to him. This is my beloved son. I'm pleased with him. Listen to him. If you're in the Hebrews Sunday school class, I think you've read that chapter already where it says that God in different times and in different places spoke to us 
by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son, the final messenger. Listen to him. But I also think the transfiguration does answer the big question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is this person? I want to share with you some of the words of a friend of mine who is a who was a pastor in Michigan, but has now moved on to another place. His name is Kevin DeYoung. And he answers the question this way, who is Jesus? He says, Jesus is the son of the living God. Not just another prophet. Not just another rabbi. Not just another wonder worker. He was the one they had been waiting for, the son of David, Abraham's chosen seed. The one to deliver us from captivity. The goal, the goal of the Mosaic law, it was pointing to Jesus. It's Yahweh. He's Yahweh in the flesh. He is the one who will establish God's reign and rule. The one who will heal the sick. The one who gives sight to the blind. The one who frees the prisoners. The one who proclaims good news to the poor. He is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. Who is Jesus? He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He has existed before time and will be existing after time. He is the embodiment of the covenant. He fulfills the commandment. And in doing so, he reversed the curse. Jesus, who is he? He is revealed to us through the prophet Isaiah as the suffering servant. He is the one that John the Baptist proclaimed. Jesus. That's what they were seeing on that mountain. And we need to remember that Jesus is not the reflection of how we're feeling on a certain day. He's not a projection of our own desires. Jesus is our Lord. He's our God. He's the Father's Son. He's the Savior of the world. He is the substitute for our sins. He's more loving. He's more holy. He's more wonderful. He's more terrifying than anything you can ever imagine. And this morning, Judith and I read Revelation chapter 1 again. And standing in the midst of the church is this awesome, terrifying, powerful figure. It says that his voice was like the voice of many waters, face shining like the sun, feet of burnished bronze, resplendent in glory, standing in the midst of his church. And when Moses met him at the burning bush, Moses' life was changed. When Paul met him on the road to Damascus, Jesus changed Paul's life. He was never the same. John Wesley, wandering around Aldersgate, London one night, walked into a church, sat in the back, and he had an experience, he said, where his heart was strangely warmed. His life was changed. He founded the Methodist church. He was never the same. Chuck Colson, they called him the hatchet man. Special counsel to former President Richard Nixon. In a prison cell, life all over, Jesus meets him in that prison cell, changes his life. He's never the same. And he dedicated the rest of his life to prison ministry. I was at 
Christ Church of Oak Brook. I think Larry Holm, you were there with me, and a few other guys from our church went out to Christ Church of Oak Brook. Ray Carmichael was with us then, and Chuck Olson was there in his 80s, suffering from cancer. That was his last public speech, and he was on fire with love for Jesus. Who is Jesus? I think the disciples needed that. And I'm asking you this morning as a preacher of the gospel, have you met him? I'm not asking if you've heard of him. Because when you meet him, it's different from what you've heard about him. Do you know him? Have you met Jesus today? When you meet him, you're going to spend the rest of your life following him and you never forget the day. I haven't forgot the day. Many of you will never forget the day, forget the day when Jesus opened your eyes and Jesus became more to you than anything else in this world. But there's one last thing I want to say to you. Why this lesson on the transfiguration is so important. I call it savoring his presence. Savoring his presence. Peter, from a lot of preachers like me, and a lot of Bible commentators have often said that Peter is nothing but an impulsive, has a short wick, has difficulties controlling his mouth. That on that day, Peter was just being Peter. Didn't know what to do, so he just starts talking. Lord, let's do something. Lord, let's just build. Let's just build something. He just wants to sit on that mountain and ignore the plight of the world. People say that because at the foot of the mountain, his nine other disciples were surrounded by a crowd, a man with his son suffering from epilepsy. And the disciples tried everything in the book, and they couldn't heal this man. And people say, there's work to be done. Get off the mountain. Get out into the world and do the work. And the punchline is, don't be like Peter. Get off the mountain and get to work in the valley. But what if we are all wrong? What if we're all wrong? What if Peter wasn't just being Peter that day? Let me read the words to you again. I think I have this text for you. You could see it on the screen. Peter said, Lord, it is good for, for us to be here. And I never saw the next three words after that until I was reading and meditating and praying over the sermon. He said, if you wish. He wasn't pushing his way. He said, Lord, it's good for us to be here if you wish. I am here to serve you. I will make three tents. It could be a booth. It's a, it's a dwelling. It's a temporary dwelling. Maybe his mind went all the way back to, to Moses in Exodus, going into that tent of meeting to meet with God. Maybe his mind was reflecting on the words of the prophet, of what Daniel said with the Son of Man when he comes. Who knows where Peter's mind was because he is, he is just as Jewish as they come. And he understands that these temporary dwelling places were places of meeting. They were places to remind the Israelites as they were traveling through the land that God was with them. 
I want to make one for you, Lord. I want to make one for Moses and one for Elijah. He didn't say, I want to make one for myself. But what if all Peter wanted to do was savor this moment and just prolong it a bit and dwell in the presence of God? And then my mind went to Psalm 27 and verse 4, where the psalmist says, one thing, and maybe that's what was in Peter's heart, One thing I ask of the Lord, and that is what I will seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty. And the word beauty also means good. To behold the goodness of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I want to believe that Peter on that mountain wanted to savor God's beautiful presence. When Peter said, Lord, it's good, Peter was saying, God, it's, it, it, it's beautiful. This is a beautiful moment. I don't get to do this very often, but Judith and I often, when we visit the Art Institute of Chicago, we've never, ever gone through all the rooms in the Art Institute of Chicago. One of the reasons why, not just because it's big, it's because you can't just walk in there and do a speed view. you got to slow down when you get before a Monet When you get before a George Surratt, when you get before a Van Gogh, you want to stand there and savor and watch and soak it in. And you just never, ever get through the whole place. I've never gone through the whole place. And then when you leave, though, we look at each other and say, man, that was good. Beauty. The same thing happens when Judith and I visit the Chicago Botanic Garden. We never speed our way through the garden. We stop. We sit. We walk slowly. We soak it in. Sometimes we say nothing to each other. It's it's just too resplendent to be talking at that point. We savor the moment. And when we leave... We feel filled up. Beauty. That line you see on the screen was popularized by Pope Benedict XVI in some of his writings. He talks about that if we're going to reach a cynical culture, we need to rediscover via pulchritudinus, the way of beauty. And according to the late Pope Benedict, he says it refers to the idea that pursuing or savoring beauty, whether in art or in nature or everyday life, can lead to a deeper understanding of truth and goodness. The via pulchritudinus, or the way of beauty, is God's way of drawing up the human soul away from the crassness and the ugliness and the stuff that drains us. Beauty lifts, ugliness drains Beauty fills. The crassness of our world has a way of draining us. Beauty moves the heart. It's a pathway to accessing the transcendent reality. The pursuit of beauty can help us connect with God in new and fresh ways. The beauty of worship, the beauty of this edifice, the beauty of these stained glass windows, 
if you slow down, if you open your eyes, if you look, you will see, you will experience, you will be drawn into the presence of this good and beautiful God. No wonder when God created a bald-headed guy like me, when God created people like you, when God created the people of the world and all the animals and the creatures and the insects, God said it was good. Peter saw beauty. He saw Jesus in a way he had never seen him before, and when he heard the voice of God, he and his friends just fell to the ground in awe and in wonder and in worship. So why should we care about the transfiguration? Three words, sisters and brothers, three words. When God said, this is my beloved son, God then said, listen to him. And the word there, listen, of course, means obey him, follow him. He's going to send you places. He's going to call you to do things that others will say you're insane. But you listen to him. And like Martha, you sit at his feet and you listen. And our problem today, our challenge today as the body of Christ is that we have not figured out what Peter has figured out to slow down, to make time, to be with God. I still remember my friend who lives across the park who is a Buddhist. And he said to me when I first met him that he found out in Buddhism that Buddhism has no love. This man has been a practitioner. He's written books. He started schools up in, in Michigan. And he lives over here. And he said to me that Buddhism has no love. But then as he and I would meet on a regular basis to talk about Christianity, he one day said to me, you know what, Pastor Ray, what are the practices? Because he comes out of Buddhism where you have practices. You learn to sit. You learn to breathe. You learn to, to be still. And he said, what are the practices? And he and I spent time discussing this very same principle that in Christianity, many of us don't know how to pray because we don't know how to be still and to gaze at the beauty of the Lord. Many of us don't know what that one thing is. Why are we here? Is it just to get the work done, to check the box, done, we're done, we're moving on? No. The whole point of this gathering, the whole point of the church is that as we're going along, we're learning what it means to rest, to sit, to pray, to listen, to read scripture, and then to hear the voice of God because God is looking for men and women who will go into the marketplace, who will go into the schools, who will go into the neighborhoods and say, here is Jesus, who will be witnesses for him, but we're so busy doing church. And sadly, sadly, and it's everywhere, spend 40, 50 years in church and still, still haven't discovered that one thing. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And Moses found it. 
Jesus demonstrated it. And you read the scriptures, those men and women of God, they knew how to sit and to adore the beauty of God. I want that for you. I want that for me. I want that for my children. I want that for your children. It's the beauty that's going to change the world, not how politically right we are. Jesus is not a Republican, guys. Jesus is not a Democrat. It's the beauty of Jesus, the grace of Jesus. And that's what the disciples saw on that mountain. And when you read the second epistle of Peter, he talks about being on that mountain with Jesus. It changed him. When you read the writings of John, he says that, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Where did he see the glory? He saw it on the mountain. James, when he wrote the epistle of James, he says, my sisters and brothers, be patient for the coming of the Lord. Because when he saw Jesus in his glory, he saw him the way he would come. James knew it's a done deal. He's coming again. Doesn't matter how long it takes. James was convinced that he's coming again. I want you to see that Jesus, church. This is not about religion. This is about knowing him as your Lord and your Savior, and reveling in him. Way over my time, but let me pray with us. Our Father and our God, we thank you this morning that you are calling us to be your people. You do not inhabit buildings. You inhabit your people. Lord, forgive us for running like a chicken with our heads cut off. Help us to slow down and savor your glorious presence. Even now, Lord, even now, come in your strength and your power and reveal yourself to each and every one of us. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. And we thank you this morning for this window into the future, the light that is also our light that we can shine into this world. We thank you, Lord. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and God's people say, amen.